the show today. I've got something on deconstruction I want to share with you. It seems like this has been a reoccurring theme on the podcast. And uh, I did a sermon about it, and I figure y'all might want to hear it. Uh, so, yeah, I'm going to play it for you. I've been uh, a little bit preoccupied, and I haven't been posting episodes, you noticed. Um, I've got something I'm working on that I'm really excited about, but it's taken up uh, most of the time that I have allocated for these sort of uh, side hustle things like podcasts and writing. And I'll be telling you more about it as we get a little closer, but one of the things I'm realizing is that the ruthless elimination of hurry, as our guy Dallas Willard told friend of the show John Ortberg years ago, is the only thing that's important. And often hurry is that thing we experience in between our goals and our limitations. And I'm trying to be better about that. And so I haven't had just the bandwidth to keep uh, putting out episodes the last few weeks. And during the month of July, I'll be doing study break. And so I'm, I'm going to record a couple, but uh, I probably won't post any until August when we get back. Um, you know, unless there's just a, a random thing or two I want to post. But most likely, August, I'll pick this back up. Um, and so maybe I'll tell you more about what I'm working on uh, when we get back. But without further ado, here is a podcast I did about deconstruction. And uh, the idea of deconstruction as often that process in which you go from a simplistic faith through complexity to the other side, which is simplicity. And you know, in this context, in my church, there's a lot of people who are deconstructing from legalism and there might be no better, uh, there might be no better a way to hide from complexity than through the form of legalism. Legalism is this means by which we say you do X, Y, and Z, and then everything is right, and everything is easily understandable. You see some of this with like the book of Job, where Job's friends have this legalistic view that if you do good things, and then good things are going to happen to you, and eventually you go, well, that doesn't work. Um, you know, from my religious tradition, the Churches of Christ, it's been legalism, like we're going to tell you all the right things to do and then you know you, you got everything figured out but you know life is far more complex than that and more importantly understanding god in this world is far more complex than that and so on the other side of complexity there's something beautiful there's something um in simplicity of knowing that you are loved and loving others that I think is ultimately the goal we're all trying to get to. So hopefully you hear that in the sermon. And thanks again for listening. You'll hear more from me in a little while. But without further ado, here is... If you have a Bible, Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning. If you have a Bible, that's Matthew chapter 5. It's where we're going to be this morning. So the year was 1977, and this woman right here, Panine Barcelona, got the job of a lifetime. She is an art conservator from Italy, and she received this great honor to work on this painting. Let's go to the next slide. Where for 23 years of her life, she worked on this painting, which was in the year 1498, painted on the wall of a monastery in Milan, Italy, by a famous painter named Thomas Kincaid, who, <laughs> who created this masterpiece. And then 500 years later, 
this art conservator was tasked with the responsibility of restoring this beautiful painting called The Last Supper to its original beauty. Now, this took her 23 years along with her team because a good day's work was making a postage stamps size progress because there was so much to undo on the Last Supper after 500 years of existence. And the greatest obstacle to restoring this beautiful masterpiece to its original condition was actually what started in the year 1700. See, in the 1700s, people noticed that this then 200-year-old painting started to not look like it used to. And so they used the best skills they had, the best technology available to them, and they began restoring this masterpiece. But what they ended up doing was covering this beautiful masterpiece with wax and varnish and glue. They even had some who would get out their own paintbrushes and get their own art supplies out and they would begin to paint over what da Vinci had created 200 years before, filling in gaps and making their own interpretive moves about what this painting should look like. The greatest work for her to undo wasn't just what the years did to this painting, but what other well-intentioned people did that muted the beauty of the original painting. Hearing this description reminds me of the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus sees a beautiful teaching that has come through the law of Moses and he starts to unlayer the things that have been piled on top of it. There's this refrain that happens over and over again in Matthew 5. Here's one of them. Here's the refrain. You have heard that it was said... To those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. You have heard it said, but I say unto you. Jesus says that about murder and adultery, about taking oaths about an eye for an eye, how we treat our enemies. You you have heard it said, but I say unto you, what he's doing is undoing all the layers that have gone over this original masterpiece that was given by God to God's people. But he wasn't trying to get rid of it. Actually, our text for today that we're going to stand for, if you're physically able, shows us what Jesus was really able and attempting to do. So if you're physically able, would you please... Stand for the reading of this one verse. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Jesus says, I'm not trying to get rid of this masterpiece, but what I'm trying to do is actually fulfill it to its original Beauty. You have heard it said, but I say unto you, is an attempt to remove the, the varnish and the glue and the wax and all the other paint that ended up on the canvas. In many ways, this is the path of maturity, spiritual maturity. Some of you might have seen this image before. 
Uh, the first image is how we imagine success in our mind. That it's always up and to the right. Like you're going to start here and we're just going to steadily get more and more successful. But life teaches you that this rarely is what success looks like. Success usually looks more like one step forward and three steps back. And then you're slowly, eventually going some direction. Up. But it's rarely just this linear line. And I would argue a, success is the wrong word, but a healthy spiritual life, a healthy discipleship process rarely looks just like this. Sometimes we have to do just the very same thing that the art conservator had to do about the Last Supper, where there are things that you have to start to remove. A text that we read a few weeks ago from Philippians 3 talks about this just a little bit. Let me read this to you. Philippians 3, starting verse 12. The Apostle Paul writes, not that I have already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. So he, he's straining forward for this prize, the heavenly call, this call to this way of the kingdom of heaven. But he doesn't have it all figured out just yet. And so let's go back to verse 13. So this is the process. It's forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. P part of the growth process is that you forget some of the stuff that you used to hold on to. Sounds like what God, through the prophet Isaiah, spoke. In the Hebrew Scriptures, Isaiah 43 says this. This is God speaking. Do not remember the for former things or consider the things of old. I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive that I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert? God is saying, I'm doing something new, so you can't just keep on holding on because sometimes... To fulfill, you have to forget what you were taught. Now, that makes me uncomfortable. Reminds me of an old story about a Baptist preacher and sociologist named Tony Campolo. Uh, Tony Campolo went to this church to preach, and before the service, there was a group of people that gathered around him and they laid hands on him, and they started to pray for Tony. He said, God, we pray that you would help Tony forget everything that he's prepared. May he forget everything that he's prepared, and would you give him something new they said amen and they left and then Tony goes, Dear God, please forget what they just said so that I can remember what I wrote down on my notes. Paul in Philippians 1 says to the church of Philippi, I thank my God every time I remember you. In the churches that I grew up in, just like the tables in the back, there were tables at the front of the church I grew up in where the communion was set. And it said the words of Jesus, do this in Remembrance of me. Remembrance is central to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But sometimes the words of Jesus are equally true about what you've had to experience. You've heard it said that the church of Christ is the only church that you can be a part of. And only Church of Christ people are the ones going to heaven. You have heard it said 
But I said to you, that's not true. You have heard it said that if you worship with instruments, you are sinning. But I said to you, that's, that's, that's not true. You have heard it said that if you don't go to church three times a week, never make mistakes, don't say the wrong words, don't be in the wrong places, don't say or think the wrong things, then God no longer loves you. But I say to you, that's not how it works. You have heard it said that the Holy Spirit was given to the church so that the Bible could be written. And once the Bible was completed, then the Holy Spirit departed. And now the Holy Spirit isn't a part of our lives as Christians anymore. But I say to you, that's, that's not real. That's not true. And this isn't to abolish God's call for us to be holy people. But it fulfills what it means for us to be God's holy people to realize that we aren't the only church that are Christians. And this isn't to abolish God's teaching to worship, but it's to fulfill the biblical command to worship with songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. It's not to get rid of, but it's to really fulfill where God is calling us to go to reimagine some of these things that we were taught to be true. And I know many of you have gone through something like this before. Last year, we had a prayer of the people exercise, or a few months ago, we had a prayer of the people exercise. The question was, what do you need to let go of? And here's a card that came in. I need to let go of the bitterness with the type of Christianity I was raised with. You've heard it said there is a type of Christianity like this, but this person needed to let go not just of the bitterness towards that type of Christianity, but they needed to grow into something new. A year ago after a sermon in which we were talking about grace, someone came up to me afterwards and said, I, I didn't grow up with grace. I grew up with legalism. I said, it's great to hear this, but where was this when I was growing up? This isn't what I was taught. But a healthy spiritual journey isn't always just up and to the right. Sometimes you have to step forward and then you think, wait a minute, this is what I learned and I have to unlearn it. Not because I want to abolish following Jesus, but I want to fulfill what it means to follow Jesus. It's part of growth. So we're in the 12th and final week of a series entitled Speaking Christian. The idea actually first came from uh, Jerry Yoder, who came into my office last August and said, hey, you did a sermon about what the gospel was. I think you should do an entire series about that. And I was like, all right, I'll do that if you let me sing a song. <laughs> Still waiting for my solo. Haven't got that yet. And so last January, we had a meeting for those who serve in different ministries. And in this meeting, I, I asked, hey, what words about Christianity you want to talk about? And so the 11 words that we've talked about so far, words like kingdom, sanctification, grace, hope, these are all words that came in when we had people participate at that servant meeting back in January. All those words were intrinsically Christian words. If you are going to speak Christian, you need to know what the word God means. You need to know what love means. You need to know what kingdom means. But there was another word that came in that wasn't uniquely Christian. It wasn't a word that, that really fit the criteria for what the series is supposed to be, but it describes a process that many Christians 
go through. And it's a word that Christians talk about now, but it's not uniquely Christian in that it's not in the Bible. Um, But it's a a word that's close to my heart. Uh, I I wrote a book about this word years ago, five years ago. Wrote it ten years ago, came out five years ago. But it's not a uniquely Christian word, and the word is deconstruction. And I don't care about this word like I care about the other words. This is a word you can take or leave. It's not uniquely Christian, but it's an experience that many have gone through. The word deconstruction is one part of a three-part process where you construct your way of seeing the world, or more specifically for us, your way of understanding who God is, and eventually things are changing. So things start to be deconstructed, and then eventually you go through deconstruction so that something new can be reconstructed. Sometimes it's understood that we start with something that's simplistic. Because like me, I started with Christianity when I was a kid. I started when I was young. And so I had this simplistic faith that I started with. And then years later, I'm 30, and those sort of understandings of God and the Bible and spirituality don't work. And so they deconstruct, not for the sake of deconstruction in itself, but so that eventually something more mature can be reconstructed. So you start simplistic and then you experience complexity so that eventually you can get back to simplicity. And simplistic and simplicity sound the same, but they're drastically different. And this is true about other facets of life. When you first get married, you have a simplistic understanding of how relationships work. Just part of it. Uh, Here's a quote that I think might describe what a simplistic picture of marriage is. Tell me if you agree. This is a guy who wrote about why people should get married. He says, picture coming home every night to your best friend, your greatest fan, and your number one supporter. Okay, we're on board with that. She or he makes each good day better and each bad day good again. We're all on the same page. Here we go. Every day you get to live what is essentially a 24-7 sleepover party with the greatest friend you've ever had, now add sex and sandwiches, get married like now. How many of you described your marriage as a 24-7 sleepover with those two things, right? Like how, how many of you assume this person has been married less than five years? Yeah, he's been married two years when he wrote this. Now, I agree with the conclusion, get married. I, I fully support that. And I fully support, this is how I thought marriage was, something like that, when I was a newlywed. But eventually you move from a simplistic picture of what marriage is, and then you experience complexity. And you realize you come from different family systems. And you have different pictures of how to parent, and how to interact with in-laws, and how to treat money, and how to understand your free time, and what vacation is supposed to be. And you have all these other things that become very complex... And if you work through that, you eventually get to simplicity. When I was having a simplistic picture of marriage, I heard someone who was decades older than me describe how in his marriage, he and his wife never would agree politically. And I thought, well, I guess that means you're getting a divorce. But eventually I realized when you mature into simplicity in your relationship, you realize that a lot of the things that you used to fight about 
you don't need to fight about anymore. Because what it's really all about is far more simple than you saw years before. As a side note, this is probably why it's less than helpful, whether you're a Christian or not, to live together with your significant other before you get married. The reason that it seems to be proven that if you cohabitate before you get married, your marriage has a lower success rate is often what happens is you go from a simplistic picture of the relationship and then you eventually move into complexity, but you have complexity without a covenant. And so you never fight through the complexity to get back into simplicity, right? We'll come back to that. This idea of deconstruction is a part two of a three-part process. There's a story in Mark chapter 8 where Peter makes this beautiful confession of faith, the, the central confession of faith in Mark's gospels, Mark chapter 8 from Peter. You are the Lord, right? He, he confesses who Jesus is. But right before that, there's this peculiar miracle where Jesus heals a blind person, but at first all he can see is a blurry picture. And then Jesus needs to come back and heal him a second time for him to see clearly. Now, maybe Jesus is just having a bad day at work, right? Like he's just, I'm just a little off my game today. Or maybe Mark's gospel is trying to set this up as a parable of what's happening with Peter. That Peter first will make this confession of faith of who Jesus is, this understanding of Jesus that he has constructed, and then Jesus says to him, Okay, great, you got that, but guess what? The Son of Man must suffer and die and be crucified. And he says, Peter says to Jesus, no, 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 this isn't right. And it's almost like Peter saw partially who Jesus was, that this picture of the Messiah, he constructed work, and then Jesus said, no, 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 it's far more complex than that. And Peter's like, I'm not ready for complexity yet. Years later, Peter is the one upon whom the church is built, because he went from a simplistic picture of Jesus through complexity back to simplicity. Uh, David Bentley Hart said this. He said, um, wisdom is the recovery of innocence on the far side of experience. That's what we're talking about. Wisdom is the recovery of innocence, the innocence you had when everything was simplistic, on the far side of the experience of complexity. Wisdom is the recovery of innocence on the far side of experience. That's what deconstruction is, part two of a three-part process. Now, this isn't everyone's journey. It's not for everyone. Not everyone has gone through something like this. Some of us have. But if you are going through this, I have two suggestions for you. And if you're not going through this and you've never gone through this, these are two suggestions which I think will help you help those who do go through something like this. So um, one of the most discouraging parts of writing a sermon or writing a series like this is Monday morning I come in my office and I have my six pages of notes sitting on my desk and I gather them up and I put them in the trash can. I'm just like, okay, there it is, goodbye. Um, there's like hours of work and it's gone. Uh, the document that has all 12 of these sermons uh, in my computer is 58,000 words right now. And then it's just done and I'm like, all right, see you later. Um, and so one of the reasons I like to 
write books is because it takes something that has been near and dear to my heart and gives it some shelf life that lasts longer. And so when I was in my early 30s, I went through this deconstruction process, and I wrote a book to help me process what was going on inside of me. And so a couple years later, I eventually uh, tried to get this book published, and I had this conversation with this um, acquisition editor at this publisher that I really wanted to go through. It was the one I really wanted uh, to publish my book through. And so I had this conversation with this acquisition editor, and I'm pitching the book to him. And a nice conversation ends, and I feel pretty good about it. And the next day, I talk to the guy who's helping me get this book published, who talked to the acquisition editor, right? And so he says, well, um, I talked to the guy from so-and-so, and uh, he said he liked talking to you, but there was nothing unique about your book. And I was like, well, I hate him. I hate this guy. He's, he's awful. And I was like, well, no, no, like, I, this is my deconstruction. I'm a pastor. This isn't normal. People don't do this. And he goes, no, it's, it's, it, it's not that unique. And then over the next few years, I received book after book after book of pastors who wrote the exact same story as me. My first piece of advice for anyone who's going through something like this, you're not the only one. It feels very unique to you, but you're not the only one. Someone from Westover in the last couple months makes some statement like this. I, I don't feel like I can go to church there because I, I, I don't think what I used to think. What I want to say is, in a positive way, like you're not alone. It's not unique to you. Many people have gone through something like this. And the last thing you should do is get rid of the most important thing for you during something like this, which is community. The most important thing you need is a group of people around you that you can support and they can support you. But many of us are like Jonah when he was on uh, the boat fleeing from God's call in his life. And the storm breaks out. And so all the sailors... They decide the solution to survive the storm is to throw out all the cargo. Many of us, when we're going through the storms of our faith and things aren't working like they used to because maybe experiences we had or because we see things differently, is we throw away the thing that we need the most that's actually going to keep us afloat, which is community. When you were going through the process of realizing that the Church of Christ wasn't the only ones going to heaven or that... Having instrumental music in a worship service isn't a sin. Or that the Holy Spirit didn't just happen in the old days, but now it still is part of our life. What you probably needed more than anything was people you could talk to about this. To support you as you change the way you understood. You need community. What's peculiar to me is that some people now in the church are very critical of deconstruction. Which is weird because it's been around for decades. For decades, people have been talking about this. Uh, in 1989, at the Society of uh, New Testament in Dublin, Ireland, a guy named Paul Ricoeur, who's a French philosopher and Christian, described this construction, deconstruction, reconstruction process as naivete, the desert in the second naivete. I guess if you're French, you talk like that, I don't know. Um, but people have been talking about this since... The 80s. Substantial theologians have been talking about this. But some have been critical of it now. 
for whatever reason. I heard one person say that if you've truly ever experienced the grace and mercy of Jesus, it's impossible to deconstruct from that. Which I think is a simplistic understanding of deconstruction because no one's deconstructing from grace and mercy. They're reassessing all the varnish and the wax and the paint that has been added on top of the beautiful painting, the beautiful picture of what Jesus' grace and mercy is. So no one's deconstructing Jesus. We're deconstructing all the things that have gotten added on top of it. All right, so I think that's a simplistic statement. But more importantly, if you're struggling with your faith, what does it do when the church says, no, you can't do that? What does it do if you're trying to go, I'm, I'm trying to hold on to my faith, which isn't always easy, and people are going, no, 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 you can't do that here. What does it do to them? Well, for one, it specifically ignores a command that's in Scripture. In the book of Jude, there is this very simple command that everyone needs to hold on to during deconstruction. Be merciful to those who doubt. If you know someone who's going through some sort of faith crisis, be merciful. If you're going through one, be merciful to yourself. Because what's, what's the alternative? What's the alternative? A friend of mine at my first church in Florida, he was an endodontist who did root canals for a living. And uh, he had all these weird statements because, again, he, he chose to do root canals with his life. You, you shouldn't be surprised. Like one day, his mother-in-law came into his dental practice to get a root canal. She was nervous, and so she sat in his chair, and so he walks in, and he's got, like, the glasses and the mask and, like, his dentist costume on, and she's nervous, and she looks at her son-in-law and goes, I couldn't sleep at all last night. I couldn't sleep at all. And Rex lowers his mask with a smile on his face and goes, me too, right? Like, he's, he's that guy, right? And he had this line about uh, a hurt tooth. He goes, if you have uh, an injury and your tooth is hurting... Just ignore the problem, and it'll go away. Just ignore it, and it'll go away. And what goes away isn't just the hurt, it's the tooth. The tooth is eventually going to go away. You got it now? Thank you. Um, the point is, if you, if you ignore someone who's going through a faith struggle, or you ignore your own questions, what's going to happen? What's going to go away? The problem's not going away, but your faith is going to go away. Which is why I think... You need to be merciful to those that have because the most important thing as you're going through something like this is community, staying connected. Here's the second thing. I think one of the healthy criticisms of some of the way that deconstruction is understood in popular Christianity today is that you can kind of tear down faith and replace it with whatever you want. Like, well, this is what I was taught and I don't like that, and so I'm just going to make up my own stuff. Like, I, I didn't like this idea, so I'm going to ignore that idea. I'm just going to replace it with whatever I want. At the heart of what we're trying to do with the series is not create a new painting, but trying to remove all the layers on top of the painting so we get to what it originally was supposed to be, to restore the original painting. Because Christianity is an inherited faith. You don't make it up. This isn't just your relationship with God. It's a part of something that's mediated by thousands of years of Christians. We're part of something bigger than ourselves, so we don't get to just make it up. 
But what's difficult is learning to differentiate what you have been taught to be true with what is truth. This card reflects a lot of wisdom. This person said, I need to let go of the bitterness with the type of Christianity I was raised with. Not everyone can differentiate the understanding that there are different types of Christianity that you've been taught or you could be taught with actual Christianity. There are plenty of things that we're taught to be true and they are not necessarily what is truth. So maybe hypothetically it could look like this for you. You grow up in church and you're taught God is Jesus. Jesus dies on the cross, forgives you of your sins, you have the spirit with you now, and you have heaven waiting for you in eternity. All right? You start with that. And then on top of that, you get told, and if you're a Christian, you need to be a part of a church. Okay? And then you get something added on top of that, which is, and the only kind of church you can go to is the church of Christ, because we're the only ones going to heaven. And anyone who worships with instruments is wrong. And anyone who claims there is the Holy Spirit that's with you still is also wrong. And so all of a sudden you have this whole cluster of things that you've been taught. And what is most true, God, Jesus, resurrection, has all these layers added on top of it, which you've been taught to say that those are true, even if they themselves are not true. If you're going through deconstruction, you need community. The second thing you need is the ability to differentiate between what's of most importance And what are things that you've been taught to be true, which might not necessarily be truth? But Christianity isn't a religion. You can just pick and choose whatever you want. I would submit that you need to submit yourself to what the church through Scripture, as mediated by God's wisdom, tells you is of most importance. I'm going to tell you the two things, which I I, I taught this the very first sermon series I preached here eight years ago which is what I think is of first importance. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. What's of first importance is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Jewish texts, in accordance with scriptures, that he died for our sins, he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. That's of first importance. Trying to understand how Deuteronomy says that these are the books of Moses that Moses wrote, but somehow Deuteronomy 34 tells of how Moses died, that's not of first importance. How to understand the book of Jonah or creation versus science, all these things are great discussions, but they are not as of first importance. They are not the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And sometimes when we add what we think is the right way to interpret secondary issues, what we end up doing is we add extra layers to the painting, and it starts to not look as beautiful as it used to be. Jesus says this is what's most important. Let's go to Matthew's Gospel. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus says, Teacher, which... Er, Uh, This is a question to Jesus. Which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, Jesus, that is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul 
and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. If you want to fulfill the law and the prophets, if you want to take all of that and synthesize it into something, it's this. You love God and you love people. This is the greatest commandment. So what's of first importance is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And the greatest command is to love God and love people. And unfortunately, a lot of people just like me who lead in churches do what was done in the 1700s to the Last Supper by Da Vinci. Because we're well-intentioned, we want people to see the picture and we start to add things to it in a hopes to make it prettier or, or more inviting or more something. But what we end up doing often is we hide the beauty of the original painting. And so here's my suggestion. If you're going through deconstruction, would you please remember one thing? That the painting is very beautiful. It's the most beautiful story ever, and it's true. And it's difficult sometimes to see that truth, because what you see often is what you've been told to be true, and sometimes that's not always helpful to the story. So you, would you please remember what's most important? And don't do this by yourself. And second, if this isn't your journey, which it doesn't have to be, this isn't a Christian word, this isn't something that's essential for Christians to know, but what is essential for Christians to know is that you need to be merciful to those who doubt. The Bible commands you to do that, which looks like learning how to listen and to be empathetic and to be understanding. And this doesn't mean you're letting anyone pick and choose whatever they want out of the Bible. But what it does mean is understanding that the process of growth doesn't always look like this. Sometimes people go through different parts of their journey and you need to give us space and give them space to go through it for one reason. Because you believe the one who will carry them on to completion, it's not you, it's God. And it's not you, it's God's spirit inside of them. And so would you give God space to do God's work inside of other people? So please be merciful to those who help you.